Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Welcome to episode 11 of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. Today, Travis and I take a closer look at hot yoga, cold yoga, and the science of body temperature. How does temperature affect our bodies in general, and what role does it play when we're moving our bodies in yoga or any other movement practice? Is hot yoga a safe type of yoga, or does it pose significant risks we should be aware of? Does the sweating that we do in hot yoga detoxify our body? Do hot yoga and cold yoga require more energy expenditure than room temperature yoga? In other words, do we burn more calories in hot and cold yoga? What do we know about the benefits of heat exposure in a sauna and cold exposure in cold water immersion or cryotherapy? Can we assume that we get these same benefits from hot or cold yoga? How does the human body regulate temperature anyway? And we talk about much more as well. We really think you'll enjoy this body geeky discussion with lots of insights for yogis, movers, and fitness enthusiasts. If you happen to be a member on my website, JennyRawlings.com, just know that you can also actually watch the video version of this podcast as a bonus feature of your membership. So if you prefer to listen via audio, that's great, and you can just listen right here. But if you'd like to actually see Travis and I talk face-to-face as we have this conversation, feel free to do so over on my website. And now without further ado, here's our episode. Welcome to our episode. We are here today to focus in on hot yoga and cold yoga, and just in general, ideas and what science might suggest uh, around temperature and how that may play a role in yoga, movement, and exercise. So just kind of like in general look at that, but but through really like a yoga-specific lens. And the reason that we decided to take a closer look at this topic today was actually based on a a suggestion from a a listener who wrote us and uh, requested a podcast episode on hot yoga and cold yoga. And that was really helpful because I'm not sure that we would have even thought to cover this topic, but it gave us an opportunity to kind of dive in and do a little research and some reading up on this. And uh, I personally found it really interesting to learn a little bit more. Uh, and so thank you to our listener who who suggested this topic. So hot yoga, as as most of us are probably aware, hot yoga is clearly the much bigger trend and more popular in the yoga world than cold yoga. I'm pretty sure that like 100% of our listeners are familiar with hot yoga. Maybe they even practice hot yoga. Cold yoga is, is not, not as big as hot yoga, but it apparently is a thing. There is like a studio, a fitness studio with like a cold or a cooling emphasis that opened in New York City a few years ago. It's called burn with like a lot of R's for burn. 
Yeah, that's the name of the studio. It's like a cool fit, like cool as in temperature, cool fitness concept studio. They have lots of classes, but they have yoga classes. And so in my research, I read up on some interviews with the founder and some people who went and took classes there. But but in general, I, I did not get the impression, maybe you did, Travis, but I, I don't think cold yoga has really like hit it big in the yoga world. But I think it's, yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard of it until uh, our yeah. listener brought it to our attention and Clearly, like you said, everybody's heard of hot yoga. A lot of people have done hot yoga. Mm-hmm. I've done hot yoga. You've done hot yoga, right? Um, mm-hmm. But neither of us have done cold yoga. But we could. I could go outside right now and do cold yoga. <laughs> just do yoga outside. Yeah, in cold weather. Yeah. So that's why I, I just kind of felt like even though it's not that popular in the yoga world, it's still interesting. And just from like a body learning standpoint, it's interesting to look at that range of possible temperatures in which we could be moving our body or practicing yoga. And it's it's fun to talk about these two things together because the benefits or the why you might do hot yoga would be the exact opposite of why you might do cold yoga, right? Um, yeah, you have people who are certainly people, the people who own the studios that do this are saying like, this is the thing that you should do, or this is the thing you should do. And they're on complete opposite ends of the extreme, yet they're both kind of, you know, saying that they have these amazing benefits. So how could that be? <laughs> right, right. And in some cases, I find, uh, from what I'd read, owners of hot yoga studios claim the same benefits that that like that. I I really only know of that one studio that has the cold yoga, but they're claiming similar benefits, but from opposite ends of the of the temperature spectrum. So like, what's up with that? Yeah, maybe it's all a hoax. <laughs> right, maybe it's a hoax. Or maybe everything works. Maybe it all works. Can you tell us a bit about what is what is hot yoga? Yeah. So hot yoga, there are a few different kinds. There's Bikram, which is the mm-hmm. big one. And then there mm-hmm. are other ones. And maybe you know certain names of other popular ones, but Bikram seems to be the big one and then everything else. And it's just, it's it's yoga in a hot room. And so the, the temperature of the room, I think, ranges from 80 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know, Celsius. Sorry to everyone else in the world. <laughs> up to 100. I think it goes up to a 104 degrees Fahrenheit, okay. at least in Bikram. Um, and then that's 40 degrees Celsius. 104 degrees Fahrenheit is 40 degrees Celsius. Perfect. Bikram is a little bit hotter than other hot yogas. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Yes. So it's it's yoga done in a hot room. And Bikram is a particular genre that has a set sequence of poses, 90 minutes in duration, Mm -hmm. I believe. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the other styles are just whatever the other styles are. They're generally vigorous. Although I did read that you could have uh, like a yin class in Mm -hmm. a hot room. Okay. The premise is that you, the heat helps you get more out of the practice <laughs> you know if if you're you're after flexibility gains uh, mm-hmm. the heat will get you into deeper ranges of motion um you will sweat more you will definitely sweat more <laughs> i my personal experience was that i definitely sweat more um and it feels very vigorous and uh it's hard and people like that mm-hmm. and um right what else is there what else would you tell somebody who had never heard of hot yoga? Like, <laughs> what is there to it? 
Right, right. I think I think it's everything that you summarized there. I think people like to just feel that they're challenged and and moving your body in a hot environment is certainly challenging. Other common claims that I tend to hear about hot yoga, like why people love it, is ideas about the sweating being detoxifying or cleansing or purifying. And also just that because there's the heat involved in there, that extra sense of vigorousness, the idea that we're expending more energy, aka burning more calories. And for some people, that's important to them in their exercise, you know, feeling like they're burning more calories. And so that often drives people to do hot yoga as well. They're like, well, it's harder. I'm burning more calories. Maybe I'm less comfortable because it's so hard, but that's why I'm doing it. I want to, I want to expend more energy. Mm-hmm. Those are some of my, some of my impressions. And yeah, like you said, Bigram is, is definitely, I think they were the the first to really um, bring, or, or Bigram himself was the first to establish hot yoga as a practice here in the West. Uh, but, but there are other like core power yoga is a, is a big franchise. That's, of that's yoga the studios one that I took. That I you took, took my, yeah. My one Your single hot yoga experience with that core power, yeah. <laughs> Yes, totally. I uh, I don't think they set the temperature to 105. It's like not that high. You know, like you said, hot yoga can be arranged. So I think at core power, it's less. Uh, I believe, and I re- I should have checked before, but I think it's somewhere like maybe 85 to 90, something like that would be my guess of what the temperature is um, in uh, at core power. And there's also uh, Baron Baptiste is a yoga teacher. He has Baron Baptiste power yoga, and that's another style of yoga that's known for hot yoga style. And there's another yoga studio chain I'm aware of called Moksha Yoga that's, I think, kind of big-ish. And they also, these are all yoga studios and yoga practices in the West. And they're also known for utilizing hot. And of course, they're also independent studios that aren't necessarily part of a bigger chain that uh, bring in, like, they warm the room and heat the room. I, I read, and I'm wondering if you know this to be true, that the inspiration for hot yoga originally, and maybe it was from Bikram, it was to mimic the heat and humidity in India. Did you? <laughs> you know, I read that too. Is that totally I read that made too up? In okay. My I honestly don't know. Like I, I read that, but I don't, apparently Bigram said that, that when he started his style, it was to mimic, mimic India. And I know that when we put out in, um, uh, to my social media audience, we put out some polls and questions to them about their experience and thoughts about hot yoga and cold yoga. And some people just responded with like all yoga in India is hot yoga because of just the climate mm-hmm. there. And I, and I, uh, I, someone else was like, I live in Florida. And so all the yoga here is just all hot yoga, whether it's hot or not. So yeah, there's definitely like the element of just the outside temperature. And then on the flip side, we like we already have established cold yoga is nowhere near as big as hot yoga. And I really only know it to be uh, mainly in that one like New York City studio. But cold yoga would just be again yoga, but in a room that instead of being heated is cooled. And from what I looked into, it seems like the temperatures there are anywhere like in a cool room for yoga. We're, we're anywhere from like 45 degrees to 60. So somewhere in that range. So not like below freezing. And again, these are Fahrenheit. Um, when I'm saying these degrees, these are degrees in Fahrenheit. But that's kind of the range. So and Travis, you have taken one hot yoga class before at Core Power Yoga. What what was your experience? It it was kind of a bucket list thing, I suppose. I wanted <laughs> to try it and, and see how I liked it. It was one of those core power classes where there's a you, you do yoga and then in the middle there's like a 
cardio sort of routine with some light dumbbells. And then you do more mm-hmm. yoga and you finish. And I remember it being very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember it taking a really long time afterwards for me to like feel back to myself. And I also remember really wanting to get through the entire class without having to walk out of the room. And I was unable to. So I, I had to briefly refill my water bottle, maybe like three quarters of the way through. So yeah, I, I didn't, I wasn't able to stick it out without leaving the room the entire time, but it was fun. And I think I would do it again under the right circumstances. Like if I, if I could bring a friend who had never done it before and then we could experience it together. But I, the, yeah, the last thing I remember was after I took the class, I remember lying on my back, like just dead. Um, and, and there's totally. a there's a picture somewhere on the internet of that uh, document. In the actual, in the yoga, yoga studio, you were just like. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah that, I guess the other thing I remember was, you know, the room was crowded, which is okay. So it was a Friday mm-hmm. afternoon. And I'm looking around. I'm like, does nobody work in Philadelphia? Like, what is going on here? Uh, it was a very young demographic. I I don't know. I mean, I was there, right? Like I was a PhD student at the time. So my schedule was flexible enough to allow me to attend. Mm-hmm. And I remember it being really sweaty, really, really sweaty mm-hmm. to the point where it was, I felt a little unsafe from a slippery mat standpoint. Oh, from a slippery mat, right. Unsafe in that yeah. sense. Yeah, for me. And I'm like, I know that I sweat more than the average person. But I think that people are going in there to sweat. And I just wonder, well, how do you, I guess you bring a towel or maybe they give you towels, but it's like, Mm -hmm. it's still just uh, my, I put my injury prevention glasses on. Because your injury prevention actually totally. I say, hmm, this environment might not be the safest to do balancing poses and whatever else, but I don't know. You don't hear about people getting injured from slipping on their mat in hot yoga. So maybe it's just... Maybe it's not such a big deal. Yeah. In in theory, it seems like it could be a risk factor, like an external risk factor, as we talked about in our injury prevention episode, like there are internal versus external factors. It seems like the environment that you're in and like the moisture on your yoga mat could definitely play a role. And we did have, when we put out questions to my social media audience, we did have some people who, um, because we asked people, if you do practice hot yoga, why do you? Like, why do you like it? And we also asked people, if you don't practice hot yoga, why don't you? Or why don't you, why don't you like it? And uh, multiple people, multiple people mentioned slipperiness being a factor in why they didn't like it. Like they just, you know, felt like they, they, um, maybe they felt like it was injurious in that sense. So that does kind of lead to one of the first topics that, uh, that we were going to focus on today, which was this idea of whether or not hot yoga is dangerous or inherently like a risky practice. And so as we know, it's so popular and many people find hot yoga super addicting. And like you said, the classes tend to be packed like in many hot yoga studios. Uh, But there are also plenty of people who do yoga who don't do hot yoga. And there's often, at least in my experience, a common reason that people avoid hot yoga or dislike it is that they think it's injurious. So one way, I mean, I guess there are a few points to how it could be injurious or a few possibilities. One is exactly as you already mentioned, like just the the slippery factor, your yoga mat gets slippery. And if you're doing like a wide legged pose, like warrior two, is there potential that you could slip and maybe pull or strain something? 
I don't know of any research that's been done on that to actually like look at statistics on that. To me, it seems conceivable, but you could, like you said, Travis, you could also use a towel or put a towel on top of your mat to kind of mitigate, you know, mitigate that. And I think a lot of people do in hot yoga classes. So as far as that goes, I guess it seems like maybe it's possible, but it seems like a risk factor that could be mitigated and not one that I tend to hear people like who do hot yoga complain a lot about. But there are other factors with hot yoga that could potentially be uh, dangerous or risky. And one of them might be with something like like heat, uh, heat illness or heat exhaustion. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Yeah, if you're if you have a history of heat stroke or heat illness or heat sensitivity, like it doesn't mm-hmm. make sense for you to take a hot yoga class. And I think that's pretty intuitive, right? If you don't like being outside in the summer in the heat, then don't mm-hmm. subject yourself to extreme temperatures in a yoga class. Exactly. It's like a voluntary choice whether you choose to do hot yoga or room temperature yoga. So, yeah, uh, my understanding in my research is that there, uh, heat stroke, heat stroke is like a term that's, that's kind of commonly thrown around out there, but actual technical medical heat stroke is actually a, a super serious condition that when it actually happens, and that's like the body exerted to extreme temperatures with a, a core temperature, usually a, a core temperature of like 104 Fahrenheit or higher, that's again, 40 degrees Celsius or higher, but that's core temperature, which I'm going to actually explain the difference between core temperature and superficial te- temperature. But anyway, heat stroke is associated with like super elevated core temperature in environments like that. And that can actually lead to things like multi-system organ failure, and it can be fatal, uh, actual heat stroke. But I, I have not come across anything in what I looked into that suggests that, that regular old hot yoga would actually result, um, bring people to heat stroke. Like that's super extreme. Hot yoga may make, make people feel drained and it may make them feel like I feel really hot right now, but that's not necessarily the same as, as full on heat stroke. But with that said, of course, if people feel like dizzy or lightheaded, things like that while they're doing hot yoga, they should, they should stop. They should go and take a water break like I did. Yeah. Yeah. And also just be advised that if you do practice hot yoga, that there is a risk of dehydration because of all the sweat. So it's definitely recommended to make sure that you hydrate either before class or after class, if not throughout the class. Probably both. Yeah. Before, during and after, I would say. Right. Right. Totally. So yeah, we definitely would recommend that regardless of what specific yoga teachers may say to the students. Yeah. Well, I guess what would you say to the people who are worried about subduing their inner fire, their inner heat from the practice? (laughs) By drinking water? Yeah. Well, maybe this is a good time to just offer a little bit of a quick primer on how temperature regulation works in the body, because I think that's really helpful in thinking about and discussing whether or not hot yoga 
is potentially dangerous, at least in terms of like heat illness and heat exhaustion. So Jen, basically the human body is really, is really amazing and miraculous. And we have this innate system that regulates our temperature for us. And that process is called thermoregulation, which is a word that I've, I've liked learning and learning about, but it's just the regulation of our temperature. And in terms of the in terms of thermal effects and our temperature, we can actually think of the body as having two thermal compartments. We have an inner core and then like an outer superficial layer. So when you're thinking about temperature, it's kind of these two compartments. And our inner core, that's what's meant when you hear talk about core temperature, like the core temperature of the body. And that's basically uh, the core would be like your internal organs and your central nervous system, so your spine and your brain. And it's your inner core temperature that's actually what really matters when it comes to like the health of the body and when it comes to things like like hypothermia, which would be uh, too, being too cold and um, actual danger resulting from being cold. That would be if your inner core temperature drops below a certain temperature. And then um, hyperthermia is like this flip side term for when when your inner temperature is elevated too high. So when we're talking about like temperature, it's really about what really matters is the inner core. And then your more superficial layer, that's like your skin and your subcutaneous fascia, like your superficial fascia, like that's kind of the outer layer of the body. And uh, that temperature is more variable and it's more in line with like the ambient temperature of the room that you're in or the environment that you're in. And it can it can change more, like vary more. But your inner core temperature is really regulated around this set point that your brain, your hypothalamus, like your thermostat in the brain sets your inner core temperature to be. And we all probably know, like in degrees Fahrenheit, it's like 98.6 or or somewhere without around there. It could be. 97.7 up to maybe 99.1, something like that. And again, this is degrees Fahrenheit. Um, but your your nervous system will regulate and keep your inner core temperature constant within that very tight range, that like set point. So don't you think that's that's interesting about like the inner core temperature and the superficial? You probably did you did you know that, Travis? Uh sort of. I not as yeah. formally as you had just described it. I did uh, like when you read an exercise science textbook and they're talking about warm up, mm-hmm. they'll say one of the, mm-hmm. the goals of warm up or one of the desired outcomes is to increase your core temperature. And so right. that is so you're saying that that is the same as the when you put the thermometer under the tongue, that's the 98.6 where you're trying to raise it, raise it. But only when, when we're talking about raising it, we're talking about raising it like. A degree because a fever is a few degrees higher, right? I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. So, uh, from my reading and research, what I discovered was that when you exercise or do, you know, like intentional movement like that, uh, your, your core temperature can rise and that, but, and that's healthy and that's okay. And that's because your brain, your thermostat in your brain, it raises the set point. So that you're actually like allowed maybe isn't like the best word, but it's like, it's okay for it to be a little bit higher because you're exercising and that alone will produce heat. So, uh, but if you have a fever, that's also another situation where your set, where your brain actually raises your set point intentionally in order to fight that infection. 
like it's an immune system response. So it's actually okay that you're, I mean, obviously we know that if your temperature is too high, that's, that's bad. Uh, but in general, a fever is just kind of a natural response to infection. And when that happens, that's because the brain has allowed your normal set point of like around that 98.6, it's allowed it to raise a little bit. So in some instances, core body temperature can rise, but it doesn't rise a ton. Like, remember I said, uh, like heat stroke is when you're at like 104 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius or higher. And then that's like an emergency. So it, it can um, it can go up and down based on where the where the thermostat sets your set point, depending on like what you're doing or or what's going on. But it's interesting that, you know, thought about warm up because I did actually listen to an interview with this like thermoregulation uh, expert and he was suggesting, and I don't, he was just him, but he wasn't, he's a professor at Stanford. So I feel like he's an authority. He was suggesting that when people talk about warm up as being important for raising core body temperature, which that's what I believe is always, always quoted out there. Uh, he said that what he thinks is actually really more important is just that you increase uh, ranges of motion and increase your flexibility. And that kind of comes along with the raising of the the core body temperature, but the, like the the point isn't necessarily to elevate the temperature, but it's more just to increase how far you can move so that you're safer and more protected from injury in the in the exercise or the activity you're about to do. What do you think about that? That makes sense. I mean, that's like the the raising of the core temperature is just one of many things that you're trying to target, and maybe that's not like. A, you don't have to take your temperature before and after your warm up to make sure that you've raised it so that you're safe to exercise. It's just something that happens as you're going through in increasing those ranges of motion and getting your heart rate up, getting your breathing rate up a little bit. Exactly. Like it all kind of is wrapped up together as like one package. But yeah, I think you're right too in mentioning about taking the temperature underneath the tongue specifically is that... Um, like we're really trying, we're measuring temperature uh, for that reason. It's more about trying to get at the inner core temperature. And there's actually like cool technology now that apparently the military has invented where it's like a tablet that you swallow and through like, um, what's it called? Wow. Um, through wireless communication, that tablet can then once it's down in your digestive system or down in your core, then it can send out a signal of what your temperature is to like a device. Isn't that cool? So like that would be a very technical, accurate way of measuring core temperature. There's also a, a method of measuring core temperature where you there's like a tube that goes up your nose and then down your esophagus. And down there, the sensor down there can sense your actual inner core temperature. Also measuring temperature at the eardrum, the inner ear is also supposedly a reliable method of core temperature. Some of those are more more invasive than others. Yeah. So um, what I had heard, again, it, is also that like when our temperature is taken like at the forehead or at the temple, really superficially, like in these days of COVID and having your temperature measured before you go in, that's not actually really a, a reliable, super reliable method of actually getting at your core temperature. Yeah. Which They're just not going to stick a thermometer anywhere into you to let you in the door. <laughs> exactly. That's just not, that's not practical. But in any case, so in a situation like hot yoga, what matters for safety in terms of heat illness and um, the danger of that is your inner core temperature. And that is pretty well regulated by your nervous system. And that's regulated via thermoregulation. And that's why we sweat, because sweating is, is for thermoregulation. That's like one way that we dissipate our um, heat from the core is out in, through sweat, which is, which is like 99% water. It um, arrives on the skin and then it evaporates. And it's through that method that we dissipate heat. That's one of the ways 
is sweating. And that's like what we do in hot yoga. That's how we detox, right? <laughs> right, through sweating. Yeah, let's, should we talk about that? Let's talk about that. Well, we, we um, can talk about whatever you were going to talk about and then talk about detox. Just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. As you can probably tell from this conversation, Travis and I both share a fascination with learning and teaching about how the body works. And when it comes to movement, we channel our understanding of movement science into our Strength for Yoga remote group training offering, which is a monthly strength program we created to make strength training accessible and relevant for yogis. Our program empowers yogis in both their yoga practice and their whole life in general. Our Strength for Yoga program also comes with unlimited access to my full yoga class library. Use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in our program. You can learn more and sign up on my website, JennyRawlings.com, and the link is in the show notes. And now back to our episode on hot yoga, cold yoga, and the science of body temperature. Is sweating, and that's like what we do in hot yoga. That's how we detox, right? Right, through sweating. Yeah, let's, should we talk about that? Let's talk about that. Well, we, we can um, talk about whatever you were going to talk about and then talk about detox. Okay, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Okay. But anyway, so yes, so sweating is, is we're going to talk about whether it's actually a, a method of detoxing, but it's definitely a way that we thermoregulate. It's definitely a way that we cool the body down so, because our body can basically either generate heat or dissipate heat. But it doesn't like generate coolness. Like it doesn't, we don't like have like, we have like maybe you could think of like a furnace inside of us that creates heat and then dissipates heat out to regulate temperature. But we don't, we don't have an air conditioner inside of us. The way that we cool is by just getting rid of heat. So um, through sweat or through circulation. So like the way that the blood flows through your body is this other way that you get rid of heat. Um, Blood in your core is warm because it's in your core. And if you start to get too warm, if the brain senses that, then it'll, it'll um, circulate your blood so that more blood moves out to your skin, skin blood flow. And when the blood flows uh, at your skin, then it's able to dissipate heat out through the skin. So that's another means of dis- uh, dissipating heat is through blood flow, which I also thought was really cool to learn about. So that's like why when we exercise and we do build that inner heat, we generate our own heat. That's why people get flushed, you know, like why they look like pink or red or sometimes they do because of the skin blood flow, which is like your nervous system coordinating that. I'll be damned. (laughs) I know. I honestly, yeah. What a good explanation. Right? So all all of that is to say that we we don't really need to worry. I mean, of course, if people have pre um, if people have certain medical conditions like high blood pressure or certain cardiovascular uh, issues going on, if uh, a woman is pregnant, these are some considerations to check with your doctor before you do hot yoga. Yeah, any heart problems? Exactly, exactly. But for the general uh, public, I mean, sorry, the general general healthy populations probably don't really need to worry about like heat illness in hot yoga. If you were actually nearing something like heat exhaustion, you would know it. It would be like really, you'd really be feeling. With with that said, like my first experience, it was very intense and I'm a relatively healthy young person. Right. So like I said, it, it took me a long, maybe an hour just to feel back to myself afterwards. So, which I guess is to say like, maybe the smarter way of going about it is to start with shorter classes and get yourself acclimated as opposed to just going 
whole hog mm -hmm. hour 15 during <laughs> or 90 minutes yeah yeah during your first go at it so it even though it it's safe and as long as you don't have any of those contraindications it's probably okay you still have to be careful and mindful and even if you are a health person like listen to your body and mm -hmm. if you need to take a time out take a time out 100 percent 100%. And I definitely do think it's the case that we, our, our systems can adapt to be able to handle the heat and also the cold. So in like both of those cases, if you, you know, repeated exposure, you should be able to, your physiology should be able to respond to it maybe a little more efficiently. If you're interested, like if, if someone really wants to continue to do hot yoga. Right. So you, the first time is always going to be pretty intense, but if you went back the next week and the week after that and the week after that mm -hmm. you would it would become presumably less intense or more more tolerable yes so with, as with starting most exercise endeavors right like if someone starts running it's probably pretty unpleasant in the beginning but then as they start to adapt to to the loads and to the form of exercise it, it should start to become like their body adapts and it helps make it easier for them to do that because it's like oh you want to do this now okay i'll I'll make it easier for you to do it if that's really what you want to do. Or you you seek that sensation again and you go harder or you go to a hotter class or you go to a longer class or you go to a harder class or whatever. Exactly. And that's one of the cool things about the human body is that we is that we adapt. Um, another, so we kind of covered how hot yoga is not, not dangerous for most people in terms of like heat illness, but another, have you heard, Travis, people sometimes say that they think hot yoga is dangerous because of... Um, overstretching injuries? Yeah. Well, I saw that come up in some of the responses from the Instagram poll. So that's an interesting mm -hmm. one because I think that is both the allure and the uh, the fear, right? So because it's hotter, it, it seems like it's going to be easier to access those ranges of motion. So for someone like me who struggles in a regular temperature room mm -hmm. to feel warmed up enough to, you know, get my heels down on towards the floor in a down dog or mm -hmm. reach the floor in a forward fold. Like the, the heat, I, that would be an attractive feature of a hotter room to me. But then for people who, for whom they, they don't, they already are able to do all those things, then maybe the heat takes them a little bit deeper than they want to go or they, they have to be mindful of not going deeper because their, their body would allow them to, but it might not necessarily be the thing, but it like that, it, it, you really still have to ask the question like, well, what is overstretching? What are we talking about? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Totally. Like, like defining that term because it is kind of a, it's kind of a vague term without a clear definition. Right. Yeah. I think that exactly, exactly as you described that maybe, maybe the belief is that being in the heat can allow us greater ranges of motion that we shouldn't be going into. I think that's like what people think. From my understanding of like the stretching research, it seems that if your body is able to go into the position, um, I mean, we're not, if we're not talking about high force and high speed and like landing, you know, from a big fall into that extended position, but just in general, it seems unlikely that we're, that we would be able to, that we would, if your body can go there, then you have the range of motion and you should be able to go there safely, whether it's in a hot room or a cool room. 
Additionally, as you mentioned, uh, any any warm up, like as always, is officially recommended for any exercise or movement practices to do a warm up in the beginning. And part of the point is to raise core temperature and in- increase our ranges of motion. And that's that's in order to reduce injury. So to me, it kind of seems like hot yoga is just kind of getting us there a little faster. It's kind of eliminating that. You know, we get to increase those ranges of motion pretty quickly because of the temperature. And in my mind, that's kind of a good thing. Isn't that like why we do any warm up is to increase our, our ranges of motion via the warming up. Yeah. I, I, I think it just goes back to like, if you're someone who is prone to really extreme ranges of motion and hot yoga somehow makes you feel more susceptible to going into those positions that don't feel good, then maybe mm-hmm. yoga is not the right thing for you. Right. Right. So it's probably, it's always good to be mindful and to sense like your body's feedback. And if a range of motion doesn't feel good, don't push yourself to go there in general, in any temperature and in any yoga pose and in any stretch. I have a question for you, Travis. Is um, sweating in hot yoga, is that detoxifying? You know, I don't think so. You don't think so because a lot of people think so. Yeah, I saw I saw that in your in the the results of your poll. And um I think that the body does a pretty good job of detoxifying all on its own, like the liver and whatever mm-hmm. other processes naturally occur that uh get rid of waste products in your body. So, mm-hmm. um and you've talked uh, a lot about this with twists like spinal twists in the yes. past uh, where there's a similar, just, Oh, that somebody said that that twisting rings out your organs or some mumbo jumbo. <laughs> and that is detoxifying uh, in a, a way that is more than what your body is naturally doing on its own. And I think we've thoroughly, or you've thoroughly debunked that in Instagram mm-hmm. posts and maybe a, a video, mm-hmm. maybe just Instagram posts. Not sure I, I think link. just Instagram posts. Yeah, we'll link to it for sure in the show notes. Yeah. So, yeah, the the idea that you need to do more than what your body naturally does from a detoxification standpoint and sweating it out in a hot yoga class is going to be the thing that does that for you, I find to be very implausible. And I don't think it's necessary. I do think that you are, I know that you sweat. Uh, but the way that, you know, you just talked about what sweating does, it's a cooling mechanism. It's mostly water that it's not the top. There are no toxins to get rid of. So the, the, there are no toxins coming out because there are no extra toxins to get rid of. So the fact that you're sweating, you're just sweating and it's not, there's no need to detox and it is not detoxing. I think you put that so perfectly and succinctly. Thank yeah. you so much. I hate to I hate to burst people's <laughs> bubble with that. If, and because okay, the other thing I want to say is that it feels nice. So right, you know, you might have that sensation that you whatever that is that you feel better afterwards, and maybe that that I don't know if you can feel like you've detoxed, but like what what it feels <laughs> like to be impure or something or tox high toxicity before. Like, your you hot know? yoga class and afterwards. Yeah. So I don't think, I don't think that there's a, a particular feeling involved there, but uh, yeah, you, you feel, it feels nice. After, I mean, at least for me, it feels good. <laughs> so that's if you like, it's just not detoxing. 
And it doesn't have to be for it to still feel good. A hundred percent. And it doesn't have to be detoxing in order for us to be motivated to do it. But in general, it's like, like sweating in general from any, like sometimes I think there is this um, belief that like it just with any movement or exercise aside from just yoga. But if you're, there's this belief, like if you're not sweating, then it's not beneficial or something. I, I don't know if you've like kind right. of picked up on that, but um, yeah, it's just like, like as though that's the sign. Um, but sweating is just this natural byproduct of thermoregulation. That's like all it is, is it's just a cool, it's just a sign that you've gotten hot or warm inside your body and it's cooling you off. But it's sweating's not for detoxification. That's like, as you said, your liver and your kidneys are kind of your main organs of detoxification. They like break down and filter out those toxins. And also to a some extent, your digestive tract can play a role. If you ingest a toxic substance, it will either have you vomit or give you diarrhea. So it like detoxifies you that way. And I, and your lungs, I believe, are also considered an indirect organ of detoxification. So it's like your body, like you said, is self-detoxifying. It's not something we have to go out of our way to do unless we've ingested poison or too much alcohol or have or drug, like serious drug addictions. Like in those cases, yes, there are, there are special medical detox situations for those. So what you're saying is that for a person who's ingested poison, you wouldn't recommend hot yoga. <laughs> wouldn't that be so funny if someone was poisoned and then and you called 911 and they were like, just go do hot yoga. Hot yoga, make sure you twist three times to the left, twist three <laughs> times to the right. To get it out. That's so funny. Yeah. Um, and and not to get into it too much, but like the idea that sweating detoxifies is also super related to the idea that you can like detoxify with special detox diets like juice, green yeah. juice diets and cleanses. And that is that has been thoroughly debunked too. Like those claims are actually not based on science. And right. I read one interesting article that was pointing out that like all these companies that put out these like quote detox, whatever kits or juices um if you if you actually ask them like well what toxins like name the toxins that you're actually clearing out of someone's body like they don't they don't know and if you can't name what toxin you're talking about like you couldn't you couldn't ever conduct a, a study like a research study to find out if something was actually detoxifying without naming what the toxin is and then additionally you couldn't you couldn't um put consciously put to that toxin in someone's body in order to see if this product could detoxify because that wouldn't be ethical. Like you wouldn't be allowed to put a potential toxin in someone's body like proactively like that. So it's just like something that could never be proven via science. It's pseudoscience. So like why these claims are made, you know, mostly for marketing and to, to prey on people's ideas that their bodies are impure or unclean and that they have to go out of their way to do these things in order to purify. It's getting a little, a little beyond uh, out of the realm of just like the yoga, the hot yoga um, topic. But I think it's important to point out, like, like you said, like our bodies, they're, they're amazing. Like which the whole process of thermoregulation, I think is amazing. And our natural process of detoxification is also like, it's part of what makes us so uh, fantastic in these human bodies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that is a good way to kind of <laughs> close the detox topic. Uh, another topic that I think our listeners will be interested in, and I think we'll talk about this about hot yoga and then a little bit about cold yoga. We haven't really gotten too much yeah. into cold yoga yet, but the question of uh, energy expenditure, aka calories burned in an activity. So 
Travis, have you have you heard that people sometimes sometimes feel like they want to go to hot yoga because it's going to burn more calories? Yeah, I think that's I think that's uh, on the surface that seems plausible, right? You're working really mm-hmm. hard. It feels like you're working really hard, so you must burn more calories, uh, and that might be that might seem like a favorable outcome if you're intending to lose weight. Right. Totally. And before we get uh, into like the science behind it, I wonder if you also feel like you see this sometimes with strength training, because like strength is kind of our thing and what we do. But do you ever notice how people will sometimes it's like after a workout, if they feel super drained and, and quote wiped out, then they feel like they actually had an effective workout. But if after a workout, they just feel like pretty you know, um, they still have a good amount of energy. They don't feel super drained. Then they might feel like they didn't actually get a good workout in because they feel like they need that wiped out feeling after. Absolutely. Yes. I think that people, whether it's yoga, hot yoga, strength training, cardio, a lot of people want to feel that sensation of having just totally crushed themselves. Um, whether, Whether that's tied into burning more calories during the workout, or it could be Mm -hmm. tied into the idea with strength training of trying to tap into the epoch effect, the excess post-exercise oxygen consumption, uh, or sometimes called the afterburn effect, which is just the idea that during- I heard about that. Oh, this is a good one. So the idea is that during strength training, Um, You might not, you know, if you did an hour of strength training and an hour of cardio, jogging, biking, swimming, whatever, uh, you would probably burn more calories from the continuous exercise, the the cardio, than you would from the intermittent exercise, the strength training. But the idea is that with strength training, you elicit this epoch or afterburn effect where your, your metabolism is boosted afterwards for 40, 24 to 48 hours, something like that. And so even though you don't burn as many calories during the hour of strength training, you in total, because you're in that overdrive period afterwards, uh, your body becomes more efficient. And so if you look in textbooks, older textbooks, maybe you might see them. I mean, it's it, okay. It's a thing that this epoch effect is real. But it, the magnitude of the effect is smaller mm. than was once thought. So that is, mm-hmm. it's not really, it's not really a good, it, it's a convenient marketing thing for people who advertise strength training to say, uh, strength training is better than cardio because you'll go into this afterburn effect and you'll burn more calories after the workout. Um, but it's really, it's only, it's like a trivial number of calories. And so People, whether it's for yoga or strength training or cardio, uh, people are always looking to burn more calories either during yeah. or, at, or after. But I think maybe we could speak to the notion that that's um, the, the latest research doesn't even really bear out that that is helpful if your goal is to uh, lose weight and have a caloric deficit. First and foremost, it's just easier to eat 100 calories less. And it is to burn 100 calories exercising. Um, But then there's some recent evidence, Jenny, that I think you can speak to. I think you've read the study and I haven't. But uh, about the the idea that uh, if if you exercise more, your body kind of will adjust to account for that in such a way that um, Mm -hmm. you're not 
you're not actually burning more calories. You, you, you explain it. <laughs> um, thanks for bringing that up because I find this to be super fascinating and like a complete, I feel like a 180 degree different way of looking at, at metabolism and how, how we burn, like how energy expenditure works in the body anyway. And it's super recent. Like it's just within the past 10 years, we'll link to some um, information on it in the show notes. But there is, I'd say, I think that the lead researcher on this, his name is Herman Ponser. He's at Duke University, which is where Craig, my husband, is also at, but in a different department. So he's the second most famous researcher to Craig out of, out of Duke. I mean. <laughs> or, that's really funny. No, maybe within our audience of people who have heard about Craig before. <laughs> but I think sometimes about how Herman Ponster, I live in Durham, which is where Duke is, and he's at Duke. So he must live in Durham or a nearby town, maybe Chapel Hill. I just wonder if I'll ever like see him out like at the store or something. Walking the dog. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I, I heard him on a podcast say that he likes to rock climb. So I wonder if he's like at the rock climbing gym or something. Maybe I'll see him if I go rock climbing in Durham. Yeah, when you come here. Exactly, exactly. But um, he is is kind of like uh, the pioneer. But of course, he has a team of researchers that he works with. But his work is like totally changing what we know about metabolism. And basically, the traditional idea is, is that energy expenditure or calories burned was um, the model that everybody thinks about. And the, what I thought until I learned about his work was it's called the additive model so it's just like meaning additive meaning the more physical activity you do the more calories you'll burn and therefore the more weight you'll lose if weight loss is a goal so it's the additive uh model of total energy expenditure like in a day and that's the way everybody thought it worked and exercise is always talked about like you exercise in order to lose weight you burn more calories you lose weight but what herman ponsor has found is that it appears that metabolism doesn't actually work like that. And instead of the additive model, he has proposed the constrained model of total energy expenditure, meaning like your total energy expended in a day or total calories burned. And it's this constrained kind of like a, like a set point, like I mentioned earlier about thermoregulation and your your brain sets the set point temperature that it just keeps your inner core temperature regulated around. It's a similar idea, it seems, with energy expenditure. Like there's just a set point and there's some variability within bodies, like some people are bigger, some people are smaller, but in general, across across humans, across cultures as well. So Ponser uh, specifically studied this like hunter-gatherer tribe, the Hadza, and found that, that like he, going into that, into his research, he assumed that because they're so active, they're hunter-gatherers, he assumed that they'd be burning 5,000 calories a day and more, like just all this extra because they move around so much, so much more than we Western sedentary bodies do. But what he found was that their energy expenditure, their amount of calories burned per day was the same as sedentary Western uh, office workers. It's the same, even though they move so much more. And and what he's attributed it to is that because it's if you basically if you add in a bunch of extra physical activity that does expend energy that does burn calories but your your physiology your, your brain regulating your physiology will account for that by compensating for the extra energy you did in your physical activity and it'll pull energy expenditure from other processes in the body and for example Ponser suggests like it's actually good it pulls energy from pathological, potentially pathological processes like chronic inflammation, things like that. Like it'll um, pull energy away from keeping chronic inflammation going into your body. Instead, it expends that on your exercise. So um, Ponser's main message, my interpretation of it, is that 
exercise is still super beneficial and it's a misinterpretation of his work to say that he's saying we don't need to exercise. It's super beneficial. We should all do it, but do it for health. Don't do it for weight loss. And then um, actual weight maintenance and weight loss really comes down much more to what you, what you eat, your diet. Did I sort of did I explain that in a way that made sense? Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. It's uh, it's kind of, it's crazy. It's counterintuitive. And it's different from, I think, what we've long thought. And I, I guess the one question that I am still fuzzy on is it's that's a chronic adaptation, right? So if you're active, if you're active on the regular, then your body will adapt. But if you are active more infrequently and then you go and do a six mile hike or something like you will burn more calories that day. That's my understanding. Yes. So if you're a sedentary person and you suddenly start doing a bunch of exercise, you will burn more. And that's why people who have been sedentary who start exercise, they do tend to show a drop in weight, but only in the beginning, only until their body starts to adapt to like, oh, now you're going to start, you're going to start expending energy through exercise. Well, I'm just going to pull energy from these, from these other physiological processes. Um, another another point that I think is interesting that maybe makes this well maybe make it feel like it makes sense a little bit more is just think about the fact that if you go out and do some form of exercise that's really vigorous and afterwards you feel totally exhausted, do you think that then for the rest of your day you might be more likely to just kind of lie around and not do like you might lie on the couch? You might not partake in all these other little movements that your body does throughout the day, like fidgeting and getting up and sitting down, all these other, like um, neat is the term for like all those other ways that we move our body that are not exercise, but we still move throughout the day. And those also contribute to energy expenditure. So if you do like a really hard workout one day, will that, will that just um, encourage you? Will your physiology encourage you to do less in terms of the neat, which will then kind of compensate for that super vigorous exercise? When I think about it that way, I feel like I can under, I understand. It's a little more intuitive, this, this new model of how, how it all works there. There are all these processes we're sometimes not even aware of going on. Right, right. So you're, you're neat, non-exercise. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, non-exercise activity yeah. thermogenesis is yeah. less. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So like your eat and your neat can kind of balance each other out, which is, which is super cool. And I think it's kind of in line with the, with the constrained energy model. So then... To get us back on topic, what does this all have to do with hot and cold yoga? Oh, okay. I feel like it suggests to us that it honestly, in the bigger picture, it probably doesn't really matter if you burn more calories in hot yoga or in cold yoga for that matter. Yeah. But, but actually maybe where we should have even, the first thing that we should have said is that there's actually research showing that you don't burn more calories in hot yoga. It just feels harder. Exactly. That, that's kind of like the, the first thing that you should know is that even though your RPE rating of perceived exertion might be higher um, based on a study from Boyd et al. in 2018, that that increased rating of perceived exertion does not come with an increased caloric expenditure. 100%. Right. In a hot class. Exactly. So that's what the researchers did is they compared the exact same yoga sequence done in a in a thermo neutral room or like room temperature versus a hot yoga room. 
And they, it was like the same people did the yoga in the, in the room temperature and in hot on different days. And then they measured rate of perceived exertion. As you said, they measured their heart rate. And then they also measured their oxygen consumption. And it turns out that oxygen consumption is, is really the measurement that matters when it comes to energy expenditure and calories burned. So that's kind of what, what, um, what was the measurement that mattered in this in the study for calories burned, but it still looked at what people felt subjectively, like how exhausted they felt, which was rate of perceived exertion. And exactly as you said, it showed that in the hot yoga setting, people felt higher RPE. They subjectively felt like they had worked a lot harder, but uh, and they had higher heart rate, which was a response to the thermoregulation. Like that's part of that um, blood flow, like fl blood flowing to the skin and back to the core to dissipate heat. That's just kind of natural in a hot environment. But that actual oxygen consumption, which was the calories burned, that was the same in both groups. Wild. I know. I actually, can I read, I pulled a quote from that study that I thought might be interesting to read here in this episode. Uh, so let me just read this really quickly. Our findings indicate that identical yoga sessions performed in a thermoneutral and hot environment result in similar energy expenditure due to similar rates of VO2. And that's the oxygen consumed uh, measure we were talking about. That's the measure for calories burned. And then here's an extra interesting point that we have not gone over yet in our conversation. So that's partly why I wanted to read this. So from the study, moreover, participants of hot yoga may be inclined to reduce their effort during hot yoga, whether intentionally or unintentionally, as they perceive it to be harder than it actually is resulting in reduced exercise intensity and consequently minimizing potential health and fitness adaptations from their yoga training. So in other words, just this extra point about practicing in a heated environment, it's just like the fact that it's harder or your RPE is higher may probably means that you will maybe unintentionally work less hard just because it's harder. And then that will result in less energy expended or less performance gains or less calories burned anyway. So don't you think that's interesting? So it has the opposite effect, uh, the exact opposite effect of what people are trying to do. And I wonder, it sounds like that was a little speculative on the author's part. I wonder if that effect is true more for people who are newer to hot yoga and people who have done it a lot and have acclimated to it, maybe don't experience mm -hmm. that. Uh, I think we would need further study to find the answers to those questions, but it is interesting nevertheless. Right, right. That's a really great point though, too, that that is speculative and that the study didn't show that. It's just like what they were, what they were suggesting. But I do think like as, as temperature gets more extreme in either direction, like hot, too hot or too, not too, but hotter and colder, it, it seems like in general, it's just harder to, you know, perform the exercises maybe efficiently as you would have because you're you're going to have those, the, the temperature will impede. And then that may, in a in a bigger picture, like reduce your, your adaptations, or it could, theoretically. But you'll feel really hardcore and it'll be a great mental exercise. Exactly. And I think that's a huge potential benefit of, of hot yoga or cold yoga is like you said, it's, it's a mental, it's like a mental challenge for people. And uh, may, maybe that is one of the many possible benefits. I did want us to just touch on briefly, we talked about hot yoga and energy expenditure, but what about cold yoga or practicing yoga in a cooler environment like that 45 degree to 60 degree 
uh, temperature? And and is what sort of effect does that have on calorie burn or energy expenditure? Yeah. So I think we know from just being out in the cold that your body does have to work harder to kept, like keep your temperature up to regulate, right? Thermoregulation. But that's mm-hmm. not the same thing as doing exercise in a cold room, right? To- totally. Yes. So for my reading on this topic of uh, mostly studies on like exercise in cold temperatures, but it seemed like the the main point was just like you said, yes, your body does expend metabolic energy just to thermoregulate and keep you warm in a cooler environment. But if you're exercising or moving your body at the same time, then the exercise and the movement is what's doing the thermoregulating for you. And therefore, the body doesn't actually have to have this extra layer of the the metabolic energy directed to warming you. So if you were just sitting still and not moving, if you were just sitting in a cool environment, then I believe your energy expenditure would be a little higher than if you were just sitting in a room temperature environment. So if you were sitting like working on your computer in both of those environments, you at baseline should burn a little more in the cooler environment. But we should note that if you layer up, like if you have a sweater on and you're bundled up because it's cold, then that in and of itself is going to contain your heat and that will that'll kind of counter the cool atmosphere and then your body doesn't actually have to increase its metabolic cost to keep you warm so you can create like a a warm micro environment within a greater cooler environment by just bundling up and then that kind of cancels it out isn't that interesting yeah i i I don't know i'm not familiar enough with cold yoga to know whether the people are allowed quote unquote to bundle up or whether they're supposed to Mm -hmm. just be in their typical you know yoga attire for a what a temperature neutral is that what you you called a regular temperature yes thermo thermo neutral yeah so i I don't know yeah it it does it does sound like it would be if you're if you're bundling up then you're gonna mitigate the effects of the cold room so if you want to make sure that you get the effects of the cold room, then you have to not bundle up. But I, I just don't know what's allowed. Quote right. Unquote. I agree. I don't know what's allowed either. In um, one article I read where like a journalist went and did cold yoga and then wrote about her experience, she said that she was wearing a long sleeve shirt and that she got warm really quickly and just took the long sleeve shirt off. So I read that. But um, in either way, even if even if you weren't bundled up and you were just wearing like a tank top or whatever, like you'd normally wear in thermo neutral environment, as soon as you start moving and you warm up from moving, then that's that right there is just already built your inner heat for you. So you're via the exercise, like whether you are bundled up or not. So it's kind of like if you're exercising in the cool, um, it doesn't it kind of counters what your body has to do to keep you warm. So it like also it just seems like if if the temperature is cool or if it's hot, it just seems in general if calories burned or energy expenditure matters, uh, it doesn't seem like there's a big difference from my reading of the research. Mm-hmm. I agree. But that's like yoga in cool and hot temperatures. What about things like saunas in a hot temperature or cool um, cold practices like things like cryotherapy, which I'm not sure if our listeners know what cryotherapy is. Maybe you could even define that for us, Travis. Yeah. 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 So cryotherapy is cold chamber exposure. So you immerse yourself in a, it's like, it kind of looks like a tanning booth. Um, It's kind of like the same Mm. shape. And then there's just cold air like blown at you for a few minutes. 
Um, and it's really cold. I've, I've done it a couple of times and it feels nice. It was another mm -hmm. bucket list thing for me. I, I, and mm -hmm. I, I, maybe I would do it again if, if I was presented the opportunity, but it, uh, it has purported benefits that scientifically, like the, the data's not there to, to say that it really does mm -hmm. or doesn't do the things that it proposes it does. But anyway, that's cryotherapy. And the, the point in relation to cold yoga is that cryotherapy is much, much colder than the room is in a, uh, in a cold yoga class. And the duration is much, much shorter. Like I said, when you're doing cryotherapy, it's just a couple minutes of exposure because you would freeze. Like you would get hypothermia mm -hmm. in that, in that amount of cold for a longer duration. And so it's similar with hot yoga and a sauna. So you think, oh, I'm just going to go do hot yoga. I love saunas. I'm going to go do hot yoga and it's going to be the same benefit. That's not true because it's not nearly as hot. So 104 degree mm -hmm. yoga studio room sounds really hot, but a sauna is like 150 degrees or something crazy it's like that. It's more I've read. And, um, yeah, it could be more. Yeah, maybe up to like 190. And you're, you know, mm -hmm. you're doing the sauna for 10, 15, 20 minutes max, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't maybe people do it longer, but whereas a yoga class is 45, 60, 90 minutes. And so it's just, they're not the, neither the hot nor the cold exposure is neither as hot or as cold as the sauna or the cryo chamber. And therefore the time mm -hmm. domain is different. And even, even so, so you're not going to get those benefits that you think that, oh, I can just do yoga in this hot or cold and I'll get those benefits of those, the sauna or the cryotherapy if the benefits of the sauna and cryotherapy are even worth writing home about. That totally makes sense. So, so like making the assumption that, that um, benefits you hear out there that you get from the sauna or cryo, making the assumption that you'll get those same benefits from yoga. It's just, they're, they're not the same thing. And so we just want to be, remember like about specificity and keeping like the environments that we're talking about and the context that we're talking about specific. But when it comes to the benefits of sauna and the, so like the benefits of hot exposure and cold exposure, like saunaine and cryo and also cold water immersion and taking cold showers and cold baths, like there, there's just a lot, there's a lot out there. I feel like the cold stuff is extra trendy these days, partly, partly because of um, someone that people may be familiar with, uh, Wim Hof. I believe it's pronounced Wim. I don't think it's Wim Hof. I think it's Wim Hof, but he's Dutch and he's known as the Iceman and he's set like some world records for like swimming uh, under the ice, like for a um, length of time swimming underneath ice or running the length of a marathon barefoot on ice, things like that. He's like, he's really amazing that way as far as temperature goes. But anyway, I think, I think he's kind of helped uh, increase this trend toward, toward cold exposure. And uh, Travis, have you read at all or heard all, at all about like supposed benefits of cold or heat exposure? Like what people think they're getting out of both of those? Yeah. So the, the one that I have read about is the cold water immersion or hydrotherapy mm -hmm. and I was surprised in my reading to find that actually the evidence for that for athletes is decent. It's not great, um, but it's better than cryotherapy and sauna. It's not as good as like, we know that sleep helps performance and right. decreases injury risk and proper nutrition and all of that. And so if you think of like a hierarchy of quality and quantity of evidence, like sleep and nutrition are the best for the, for performance and injury risk. 
And then this cold water hydrotherapy is actually pretty good. It can help speed up your recovery processes so that you can perform better more quickly after a bout of intense exercise. And so there, there is a d enough evidence there where if you, and it, you know, the percentage isn't necessarily a huge, you're not necessarily getting a huge benefit of, from it, but you might be getting some benefit from it, which might be worth it to you if you are looking for that last few percentage points. But there's a big difference between immersing yourself in cold water and being in a cold room or doing, or being in a cold chamber. Um, so that you can't just say, oh, well, because cold water immersion has been shown to be somewhat beneficial for athletes for performance, uh, now suddenly doing yoga in a cold room is going to give me that same benefit. Totally. So the two aren't necessarily equivalent, equivalent. And that's good to keep in mind. It's so easy to like read some um, something that came out of a study or some conclusion from some research and then just want to apply it to uh, these other contexts where it's not necessarily like appropriate to apply it there. And kind of on the flip side, I've looked into a bit of research on benefits of sauna, like sitting in hot saunas. And from my from my look at some reviews that have been done on that, it seems like there is some evidence that the practice the practice of, of regular saunaing can have some beneficial effects on the body, like a potentially reduced risk of cardiovascular disease, decreased blood pressure, things like that. But what the research review articles I read on this topic, what they suggested was that the physiological adaptations that may result from saunaing are the same, if not less than uh, just, just like a moderate intensity exercise, like walking. So basically they're similar adaptations you would also get from exercise and you probably get those adaptations to a higher magnitude from just taking a walk. So it seems that like something like saunaing could be beneficial, especially for people who can't exercise or don't want to exercise, then maybe that could be helpful because otherwise what are they doing? So they could let the heat kind of create some of those adaptations for them. Or if people are already active exercisers, maybe they use a sauna as like an adjunct to exercise, but it's probably not better than exercise as far as like super similar adaptations. Isn't that interesting? I think that's super interesting. And I think you, you nailed it. It all, that conclusion makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thanks for saying that. So I just think, yeah, it's good to keep in mind that like saunaing and cold water immersion and cryo, those are those, um, you know, research seems to be like, there are a lot of questions about both of those practices. It seems like in theory, they could have ben some benefits to offer that maybe just haven't been researched. I feel like that's the case more with some of the cold, like cold water swimming trends. And I read up on a bunch of that. And it just seems like in theory, uh, you could imagine how they may have beneficial effects, but they just haven't really been researched yet. So research can't really like support it either way. But a lot of people love cold exposure. And a lot of people love hot yoga and maybe cold yoga too. And that's okay, right? A hundred percent. So maybe it just boils down to, it doesn't like maybe temperature and the specificity of what temperature you're practicing in doesn't necessarily matter too much for some of these specific benefits. Uh, maybe what matters more is that you pick the type of yoga that you like and the type that motivates you to get on the mat, whether that's hot yoga because you love it or room temperature yoga, or even the cool, cold yoga style. Like if you love it and it gets you on the mat, isn't that like what really matters ultimately? Yeah. As long as you don't have any reason from a medical standpoint, why not? Then I think all options are perfectly acceptable. Exactly. I think so too.
So maybe with that, that's probably a good point to conclude our conversation on uh, temperature and yoga, do you think? Yeah. But bottom line, like if you like it, do it. Just know that there there are, might be some benefits and there might be some things that uh, people talk about as benefits, but they're not really, that's not really what's happening. So temper your expectations or, or be real, realistic about what's happening. Absolutely. So there's like uh, knowledge is power. So the more that we understand about like what research might suggest about certain benefits, yes, certain benefits, no, then we can be more empowered in the in the choices that we make about what we practice and why. And I think that's, that's always uh, a really good way to go and re really helpful. So thanks so much for chatting with me about this uh, very fascinating and nuanced topic, Travis. Thanks, Jenny. And thank you to our listener who asked us to chat about it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for the great idea. It gave us a great opportunity to dive in and, and learn more uh, about a new topic, which I know my brain always loves to do. So thank you. And that wraps up our look at hot yoga, cold yoga, and the science of body temperature. Remember to use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in Travis's and my Strength for Yoga program. And the link to that is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science. And if you enjoyed this discussion, we would so appreciate your support if you had time to subscribe to this podcast and to leave us a rating or a review. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode soon. 